Al Jazeera podcast. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Demonstrations worldwide reflect widespread outrage over Israel's war on Gaza. Young people have been at the forefront, driven to political action by the images and stories of Palestinian suffering. Could this global youth support for Palestine have long-term impacts? I'm Elizabeth Puranam, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by our guests. In Washington, D.C. is Dana El-Kurd, a non-resident senior fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, D.C. In New Jersey is Zeli Imani, a Black Lives Matter activist and co-founder of the Black Liberation Collective. And in London is Noga Levy Rappaport, a youth climate activist involved in Palestine solidarity campaigns in the UK. A very warm welcome to all of you. Ms. Al-Kurd, I'll begin with you in Washington, D.C. Just how much has Israel's war on Gaza, would you say, revitalized support among the world's youth for the Palestinian cause? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so in terms of... Israel's recent conduct um, sparking so much mobilization, as your reporting uh, showed, um, we have uh, a great deal of evidence to suggest that um, young people and uh, the pro-Palestine solidarity movement generally is growing. Um, so, for example, the Crowd Counting Consortium, which is a joint project at the University of Connecticut and the Nonviolent Action Lab at the Harvard Kennedy Center, uh, School, um, showed that between October 7th and November 26th, there were close to 2,000 pro-Palestine rallies, march, marches, demonstrations, uh, all sorts of mobilizations in 40, 468 different cities and towns, and across 49 U.S. states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and Guam. This is just in the United States. And by December, uh, Jay Ofelder, the a researcher on the project, noted that on the pro-Israel side, so there are also pro-Israel protests, but on that side, it's mostly counter-protests. Um, so the largest share of pro-Israel activity is not pro-Israel rallies, vigils, or demonstrations. It's actually almost always direct counters to pro-Palestine uh, uh, protests. Um, and what this has uh, done in the, in the last period, um, but I would argue has started before this latest war, um, is it has mainstreamed the pro-Palestine issue in uh, both American politics, is, which is what I can speak on, um, but also in uh, the politics of a lot of Western countries. That is really interesting. Uh, Mr. Imani, uh, Ms. El-Kurd is saying 2,000 protests across the United States since October the 7th. Of course, not all communities in the U.S. will be supporting the Palestinian cause because of the same reasons. Why do people who support the Black Lives Matter movement also largely advocate for Palestinians? That's a, um, a great question. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement comes from the Black radical tradition. And the Black radical tradition has a long history of having allyship with um, decolonial movements 
particularly the Palestinian Liberation Movement. And we could trace that legacy all the way back to the 1960s with Malcolm X, who visited um, Palestine and was able to witness the refugee camps and tour the hospitals and really get a firsthand experience about the atrocities that was happening in Palestine and bring that information back to uh, Black America. And that continued that legacy from Malcolm X to the, the Black Panther Party all the way into, I believe, like 2014 with the death of Mike Brown in Fergus, Missouri. When I was in Fergus, Missouri, protesting the, the death of Mike Brown and we was getting um, hit with rubber bullets and being tear gassed, it was Palestinians who were sending us tweet messages about how to deal with the effects of tear gas. And that opened up a whole new generation to the Palestinian plight and brought up this solidarity movement, reignited this solidarity movement that was kind of dormant for a few years and this continuing on to this day. And by having these conversations, by building this collaboration, um, the slow movement, the slow mm -hmm. build, I think it's why we are witnessing this, this growth of right. um, Black and Palestinian solidarity now. And what you're mentioning is really interesting about what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, because we know that American police have trained with Israeli soldiers, that there has been some collaboration there. And you are saying that protesters, Palestinian protesters, were telling people taking part in Black Lives Matter protests about how to deal uh, with those with those security forces who have trained together. Uh, Ms. Levy Rappaport, let me bring you in here. You're in London in the United Kingdom, and I was reading that the United Kingdom has seen some of the... We've seen, in fact, over the past more than two months, the United Kingdom has some of the... has had some of the biggest protests against Israel's war on Gaza and has some of the largest support for Palestinians among the youth there. Why is that? I think fundamentally, young people in the UK have been witness to the decay of our economic and social systems across at least the last 15 years, if not more, grounded in the neoliberalist principles that underpin the austerity that has taken place, the anti-refugee laws that our hard right government is attempting to shoehorn in, and a very serious lack of opposition. What we have seen as a result is that young people in the UK feel utterly betrayed by their leaders, and they feel utterly betrayed by their media. Instead, they've had to turn to social media to watch Palestinians their age be forced into becoming journalists whilst their elder journalists mm -hmm. are being killed by Israel, or because they simply have no other choice but to document the destruction of their people and their country. These young people are our age, and they could have been any one of us. Mm -hmm. We are a country with a very serious historic responsibility in the power that Israel has over Palestine and in the very creation of Israel itself. Young people who are growing up in this country have heard some of our greatest storytellers, some of our greatest national poets, like the late Benjamin Zephaniah, dream of a free Palestine in their lifetime. We have not yet witnessed that, and now we are witnessing this genocidal campaign. On top of all of this, young people have been seriously affected by some of the greatest tragedies in the UK, such as the Grenfell Tower fire, which was caused by the flammable cladding built by the company Arconic who produced parts for the F-35 fighter jets that Israel has used in its campaigns against Gaza in the past. These are devastating occurrences, and they connect us deeply yeah. to Palestine. They connect us because we are a country of migrants, and we are 
a country that is proud to be a country of migrants. And there are so many Palestinian refugees living amongst us, telling us their stories and sharing their stories with us. You're bringing As up, young people, we have the choice. Yeah, we, are we have to be able to do this. You are bringing up many yeah. important points there that are central to this discussion. You're saying that as young people you have tools and of course one of the greatest tools that people who are in support of Palestine have used is social media. Ms. Elkert, what role do you think social media has played in why we see that great divide now between uh, older peoples in the Wests uh, generally supporting Israel and the younger supporting Palestinians. We see a lot more pro-Palestinian content on social media than pro-Israeli, pro-Israel rather. Yeah, so, right, right. So social media obviously does play a role, um, not just in the pro-Palestine movement, uh, just generally, uh, because social media allows um, for a user to... Um, go to the source, uh, pick up on information from people who are actually there, um, as, as Noga mentioned. So people are looking at what Gazans are saying. They're going on TikTok, they're going on Instagram, they're going on, you know, all the different social media apps to um, break away from the uh, more mainstream narratives um, and more mainstream media uh, coverage. And in fact, a lot of that kind of social media activity and how Palestinians um, on the ground in particular, have seized on that social media activity, has been able to then impact mainstream media coverage and, and correct mainstream media coverage. And so that's very empowering, uh, um, both for the Palestinians on the ground, but for the people who want to learn more and, and um, see and, and want to break free of some of the, the biases that they're seeing. Um, that being said, social media obviously is, is not uh, a magic bullet. Uh, social media um, is not a public uh, space. They are private companies. They are, um, you know, controlled by uh, private corporations that then can uh, shadow ban, can change the algorithm, um, can can play around with how much information people are getting and what kinds of information people are getting. And we see that with what happened to Twitter, now X, where um, misinformation and disinformation around mm -hmm. Israel and, uh, and Palestine right now is, is so widespread. On top of that, social media is also very top heavy meaning that a small amount of users can really impact the discourse. Um, yeah. That can be good in some ways if you're elevating voices on the ground, and that can also be bad um, because um, there are power differentials between who gets elevated mm -hmm. and who doesn't. People who look good, people who speak English, people, you know, so... Um, I think and that also, it does also And also skew who people are advocating for, right? Because we have seen... Uh, many who are supporting Palestinians, especially very high-profile people with a very large following on across different social media accounts being shadow banned or being outright banned, those who have been in support of Palestine. We've also seen the conversation um, around free speech getting muddled, haven't we? Mr Imani, if I can bring you in on the sort of speech and free speech on the subject... People who support the Black Lives Matter movement have been accused of anti-white racism, which is something that we've really seen, especially on social media when it comes to those who support Palestinians. Anyone who's supporting Palestinians is being accused of anti-Semitism in the same way that those who support the Black Lives Matter movement have been accused of anti-white racism. 
Yes, I mean, it's exactly very similar, right? That when the Black Lives Matter movement really first emerged, one of the ways that the oppressor tries to um, silence the oppressed is try to um, criminalize them and demonize them, right? They try to call the Black Lives Matter movement anti-white or um, racist when we were actually trying to um, bring to light the atrocities and the trauma and violence experiencing experienced by Black people and try to dismantle those very policies and practices and in, institutions to actually bring true freedom and justice. And the oppressor doesn't want that, just like the oppressor does not want a free and liberated Palestine. So they try to demonize anyone that is pro-Palestine, demonize certain phrases, like, for example, from the river to the sea, and try to make that anyone who is anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic, which is not true. Being um, anti-Zionist is not the same thing as being anti-Semitic. So we have to continue to educate people just like how mm -hmm. we had to educate people for the Black Lives Matter movement. And we'll surely, slowly see that shift where more people are able to comfortably talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. And now we're seeing more people comfortably being pro-Palestine than we were maybe like five or six or seven years ago. Yeah. Noga Levy Rappaport, I want to bring you in there because you're in a unique position in that you were born in Israel to a family that was anti-occupation. How did you uh, come to be involved in Palestinian in groups supporting Palestine? And have you seen any change within the youth where they don't accept that criticizing Zionism is being anti-Semitic? There are certainly moves um, legislating in the opposite direction, especially in the US and even in European countries. But how does the youth see that? Yes, so young people around the UK and really beginning in many parts of Israel must and have been understanding that Zionism and Judaism are not the same thing at all. Zionism is an ideology that has been subsumed entirely into Israel's genocidal campaign against Gaza and into its apartheid regime over Palestine and the occupied territories. But young people living in the UK walk amongst Jews and Muslims who live together in peace. They walk amongst Jews, Christians, Muslims, and all other faiths who live together in peace. And so they see that this is a falsity, that uh, Israelis and Palestinians can only live along religiously divided lines. My best friend is a Palestinian Muslim. I am an anti-Zionist Jew. These are existences that Israel attempts to deny, but young people living in the UK cannot deny what they see in front of their own eyes. And in fact, the active intentions of Israel's propaganda and many of our media channels, which are not criticizing this propaganda effectively enough, have led young people to feel betrayed by their media. And so they've turned elsewhere to try to mm -hmm. understand what Zionism is and why they must oppose it without being anti-Semitic. All right, Ms. Elkerd, this Yoga, uh, Noga, rather, Noga Levy-Rappaport was giving us the situation, how young people see this subject of Zionism um, and anti-Semitism in the UK. What about among youth in America? I know that you do polling among young Democrats, young Republicans. How do they differ on this? So I don't myself do polling in the United States. I do polling in the Arab world, but I do follow um, uh, and keep track of polling. Um, what we're seeing um, on um, on the question of Israel and the differentiations across generations between older Democrats and younger Democrats is quite s stark. Um, so, for example, a Quinnipiac University poll 
showed that Biden's approval rating for his handling of the Israel-Hamas war um, was, uh, amongst Democrats, only at 56 percent, um, and that the lion's share, 69 percent of Democrats and Democratic-leaning people under 35, disapprove of how Biden is uh, viewing this war. Um, also, young Democrats um, say that 61 uh, percent of young Democrats say, um, according to a Pew poll that was just released in December, say that Israel is going too far compared with 31 percent of conservatives mm -hmm. or moderate Democrats. Um, and so we have all of these polling uh, points to suggest mm -hmm. that there is this generational gap. And I do want to pick up on something that one of one of the guests mentioned, um, which is that um, we are talking about how different communities come to pro-Palestine activism, but we really must mention the American Jewish community, um, American, an American Jewish generation that was activated by the Occupy movement, that was activated by the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, that was activated also by organizing around the 2014 Gaza war, um, that are now playing uh, um, a crucial role in organizing a lot of those you know, 2,000 plus protests that we've seen yeah. since October 7th that are that are pro-Palestinian, um, and basically saying, giving a message to people, and I'm not just suggesting only anti-Zionists, but just the larger kind of uh, uh, um, maybe whatever label they want to call themselves, post-Zionist, whatever, but they're basically saying to people that there is a differentiation. Mm -hmm. um, they are making that differentiation uh, amongst the American public and saying that even if we want and we agree with Jewish safety, which of course is a demand that all of us should agree with, um, that that does not entail the uh, actions that are taking place right yeah. now. And that has been a very crucial factor. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that Jewish Voice for Peace, for instance, has been one of the groups that's been most vocal against what Israel's doing in Gaza and support for the Palestinians. Mr. Imani, how much does ethnic diversity factor in the youth population um, in America, where you are, for support for Palestinians? We've seen, you know, Gallup polls, for example, show that older, or rather, older and uh, white Americans support Israel more than non-white Americans, and that there are more mixed-race people among younger populations? Yes, I think that um, many people of color, uh, we know oppression, we know genocide, we know um, colonization, we know these things, we know the experiences of it, we know the strategies of the oppressor, of disenfranchisement, um, occupation, and so on and so forth. We know this, whether it is in United States and America or the, the countries that we are descended from. So we have, many of us have uh, a, real, a real love and affinity for other people who are also um, colonized and are also going through that struggle because we experience it ourselves. We experience the fact that when we try to speak up, we are oftentimes criminalized and demonized. So again, going back to the whole Black Lives Matter movement, it's by continually saying Black Lives Matter that we're able to um, popularize that phrase and have people understand that we are not trying to um, deny anyone else's humanity, but to affirm the humanity of Black people. Just just the same way that when we say um, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, we're not saying that we want the death of anyone, but we're saying that we want freedom and liberty for all people. And that freedom and liberty should not be just exclusive to one set of people, but it should be um, available yeah. to all people living and, on that land. And yet we've seen U.S. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib being censured for uh, saying that in support of Palestinians. Uh, Noga Levy Rappaport, you know, you touched on 
the UK's historical role in colonization. And uh, Mr. Imani was talking about, you know, that uh, people that they know um, oppression because of colonization. The, again, we've seen some of the biggest protests in the UK. Do you think that that's how much pressure or change has that led to in what the people in power are doing? I think it's leading to an enormous amount of pressure. We saw a very unfortunate uh, vote against a ceasefire just two months ago, um, which did not result in a majority against a ceasefire. But there were numerous politicians who were made incredibly aware that when we go to the general election next year, a majority of their constituents who may have voted for them before are seriously reconsidering. We're seeing how young people in particular who have been capable of building enormous pressure in the UK over the last five years alone, whether that be around climate justice, Black Lives Matter movement, Kill the Bill protests or Reclaim Our Streets movements, are now witnessing and testifying to the connection between the repressive laws in Israel against the Palestinians and the repressive crackdowns on our right to protest here. This is fueling a fire uh -huh. within youth movements here to, to ensure that we continue to fight back against these crackdowns. Young people have turned out in their hundreds of, and thousands for climate uh -huh. justice, but now they're witnessing that Palestinians don't have full security and autonomy over their own climate, their own water, their own food yeah. security and their own environment. And this is an injustice that they are feeling very deeply, that we are feeling very deeply all across the world. Yeah, again, an injustice. intersectionality there of different justice movements. Mr Imani, do you think that there's anything that the uh, protests in support of Palestinians can learn when it comes to your movement and affecting change at the policy level? I think the, the biggest thing that um, all women can learn is uh, solidarity and collaboration. Um, there's power in, in that, and that's the biggest thing that we can um, learn from each other's movement. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily about um, how to, can we influence politicians, it's about how can we learn about each other's cultures, how can we learn about each other's struggles, and how can we collaborate more in order to get the things that we, win, we right. want. Because it's not about changing who's in office, it's about actually getting um, freedom and liberation for um, all of our people. All right, we don't have very long left, so I'd like to ask uh... Ms. Al-Kurd, the last question. Do you think that the activism that we've seen has translated into actual policy? What will it take for that to happen? I think what this moment has shown is that all of this act activism is, is obviously crucial because it holds, it holds politicians and it holds policymakers accountable. Um, and especially in the United States, where there is an election coming up, it can raise the stakes. Um, but at the same time, it is quite disappointing to see how far our decision-makers and our policymakers have been willing to go, even despite all of these protests and all of this mobilization. So I think that is something that the pro-Palestine movement um, needs to contend with at some point, which is how to translate this into actual power, mm -hmm. um, because mobilization is only one level. Of, of, uh, of political power and, and a check on, on the power sources, um, but it is not the only way that we can engage with politics, and, and that is something that, that needs to be discussed um, moving forward. All right.
Thank you to all of our guests. That is Dana Al-Kurd, Zeli Imani, and Noga Levy Rappaport. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Victoria Gatenby, Abla Klar, Gemma Harris, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Ili Elhani. The program was edited by Anirban Sarkar, Negin Oliai, David Enders, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next edition. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.